You're listening to podcasts from the Congressional Internet Caucus Advisory Committee, www.netcaucus.org. Welcome. Thank you for coming. Uh, today's briefing, hosted by the Congressional Internet Caucus Advisory Committee, is titled D.C. Circuit Court Decision on FCC Open Internet Rules. Is it a win or is it a loss? Um, I want to thank everybody for coming today. On such short notice, the decision came down on Tuesday. We've been anxiously awaiting it, and um, we wanted to do a briefing as close to the decision as possible. As I said, this is hosted by the Congressional Internet Caucus Advisory Committee. We take no positions on legislation or regulation, but we're committed to the proposition that the Internet is extremely important and that we should try to assure a sound decision-making. So what we try to do in every one of these briefings is any issue that affects the Internet, we try to have a balanced perspective, a lot of different perspectives on the issue, and have kind of a collegial debate on the on the topic. In this one, um, so-called net neutrality rules kind of lends itself to that type of a debate. Um, they we're hosted in conjunction with the Congressional Internet Caucus and its co-chairs, uh, Congressman Bob Goodlatte, Congresswoman Anna Eshoo, uh, Senator Leahy on the Senate side, as well as Senator Thune. Um, I, I applaud the, the co-chairs of the caucus for the courage um, and the confidence to host debates um, that host a variety of different perspectives on very important issues where they themselves may not agree. So I, I want to applaud them for that. The hashtag for today is pound net neutrality. And um, this is just the first and kind of a start of the conversation on, on the FCC's open internet rules, and I thank you for coming. The moderator today is David Sohn. He is general counsel of the Center for Democracy and Technology. Uh, David works for um, the Center for Democracy and Technology, which is a privacy, civil liberties, First Amendment organization. Um, and David, is at, David has agreed to try to moderate this in as impartial and as fair manner as possible. So I'll, I'll hand it over to David Sohn. Thank you very much. Neutral, you might even say, Tim, right? So uh, thanks, and uh, thanks to the Internet Education Foundation for pulling together this event so promptly. As Tim said, it was just Tuesday that the court's decision came out. So this should be a great opportunity to get some initial uh, analysis um, and initial reactions to what the case means. Uh, as, as, as Tim mentioned, I'm going to moderate. I'll, I'll, I'll try to be uh, impartial in that regard. Just in the interest of full disclosure, my organization did file a brief in the case, and I think that's why Tim mentioned that. Um, to introduce the panelists, to my left, we've got Mark Erickson, who's a partner at Steptoe & Johnson and general counsel to the Internet Association. Uh, then we've got Christopher Yu, who's a professor of law, communications, and computer and information science at the University of Pennsylvania Law School. Uh, to his left is Matt Wood, who is the policy director at Free Press. And to his left is Russell Hanser, who's a partner at Wilkinson, Barker, and Nauer here in D.C. What I'd like to do is offer a little background on the FCC's open Internet rules and on the recent court decision, and then I'll, uh, I'll turn it over to questions for the panelists. So in terms of background, there's been an active policy debate over what's often termed Internet or net neutrality going on for quite a few years, as most of you probably know, it's, it's a debate that centers on whether broadband providers, that is the companies who provide Internet access, the, the, the Internet connections that people use to get online, whether they should be required to carry all traffic in a fundamentally neutral manner without any kind of interference or favoritism, uh, or on the other hand, whether imposing those kinds of requirements would be unnecessary or would impose actually harmful consequences for the carrier's ability to run their networks and run their businesses. Back in December of 2010, after a long set of proceedings and multiple rounds of public comments, the FCC adopted a set of rules on the topic, which it called the Open Internet Rules. And those rules had three main components. There was a, a non-discrimination requirement, there was a no-blocking 
re- requirement and there was a transparency requirement. Now, the, uh, the blocking rule prohibited broadband providers from blocking access to lawful online content and services. The non-discrimination rule prevent, pro- uh, prohibited broadband providers from engaging in unreasonable discrimination among lawful online content and services. But interestingly, that rule uh, exempted mobile providers. So that was for fixed Internet access only. Uh, and then the transparency rule required ISPs to provide public disclosure regarding their network management practices. Now, after the FCC put out the rules, Verizon challenged them in court, and the company made a number of arguments, uh, including that the rules were, were arbitrary and capricious, that they were impermissible under the Communications Act, and even that they were unconstitutional. And this past Tuesday, we finally got a D.C. Circuit decision that struck down the rules pertaining to blocking and discrimination. It did leave the transparency rule in place. The court held that the Communications Act does give the FCC some authority over broadband providers, but it concluded that the anti-blocking and anti-discrimination rules are inconsistent with the FCC's previous decision to treat broadband providers as information services under the Communications Act. Without getting into too much legal detail on that point, I think the, 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 the details of the statutory framework that are important here are that the Communications Act establishes two broad categories of services. Telecommunications services, which you'll sometimes hear referred to as Title II services because they're regulated under Title II of the Communications Act, and information services. And the law also has a provision that says that providers of information services, providers in that category, shall not be treated as common carriers, which uh, is a term that has a long history in common law. And the core of the court's ruling on Tuesday was that the anti-blocking and anti-discrimination rules amount to common carrier rules. And that means that the FCC cannot impose anti-blocking and anti-discrimination on information services, which is exactly what the FCC had previously said broadband service providers are. So, in effect, there's a a level at which at which the court was saying that the FCC can't have it both ways. It, it can't decide that broadband is an information service and then turn around and impose the kind of non-discrimination requirements that have characterized common carriage. With that background, I'd like to turn the discussion to our panelists. Um, and I think where I'd like to start is just with the question of where exactly this decision leaves the concept of net neutrality and non-discrimination on the Internet. Uh, Is there any leeway for the FCC to call for some form of non-discrimination, or is that now basically totally out of bounds in the wake of this decision? I'll I'll start with whoever would like to start off on that. I guess I could start. and in full disclosure, uh, I do represent an intervener in the case, intervening on, behind, uh, on the side of uh, the FCC, the Open Internet Coalition. Um, so, you know, as a matter of law, the decision means that there are no rules currently that would uh, preclude uh, a broadband Internet access provider from discriminating against content or even blocking content. Um, it, the court did uphold the transparency rule, which means that broadband Internet access providers still have to provide information about their broadband Internet access practices. Um, Procedurally, uh, the the decision can be appealed to the full D.C. Circuit uh, within 30 days if you're an intervener, 45 days for the government. Uh, It could later be appealed to the Supreme Court. 
And there's nothing, of course, to stop the FCC from uh, from reanimating several of its dockets, which are currently pending around net neutrality, um, to do this. The court did uphold that the the um, the, uh, the FCC has authority, broad authority under uh, under 706, to come up with rules that would prevent a broadband internet access provider from blocking content, but. It gave the FCC some instructions that uh, there still has to be room uh, to allow broadband internet access providers to differentiate different types of content um, and to avoid being classified as common carriers. So uh, it severely limited in that regard what uh, advocates have typically thought of as net neutrality rules. Um, And if the FCC wanted to, it still has an open docket to classify broadband internet access services or some part of broadband internet access service as a Title II common carrier service in order to adopt a non-discrimination rule. Short of doing a, a, a Title II classification, a common carrier classification, uh, the, the FCC is precluded from adopting a non-discrimination rule. And the practical effect is that uh, ISPs then could charge uh, edge providers uh, new rents, that have not been charged before to ensure that those providers can reach their uh, the ISP's subscribers uh, when the ISP uh, uh, if if uh, for different tiers of service for video service to ensure that that a video provider has ample uh, bandwidth to be able to reach the subscribers uh, and theoretically an ISP could could totally block content that uh, the ISP felt was not uh, appropriate for their subscribers so I think there will be some action. Um, but uh, uh, what that action will be is is uh, still not clear. Chris? Um, it's a fascinating set of questions. I think uh, the, the theme of this, of this session is, uh, did, was it a win, was it a loss? And I think the answer is yes. Um, I think both everyone found something to like in the decision and everyone found something to hate in the decision. I think the FCC's worst nightmare and Verizon's real goal was to say the FCC had no authority whatsoever. And in that sense, the D.C. Circuit agreed with the FCC, and yes, the FCC still will regulate the Internet. The second part of it is, has the FCC exercised its authority in a proper way? And really, when you see words like common carriage and Title II, on a, at the risk of oversimplifying, and anytime you boil things down, it is, it's, are the old rules that applied to the telephone network going to be applied to the Internet? And what the FC, the D.C. Circuit's decision pretty clearly says is, no. When you exercise the authority that the FCC has, you are not allowed to extend these old rules developed through 19, from the 1934 Act for a different technological context to the Internet. And in that sense, um, that's the part that Verizon likes and the FCC hates. And I think that tellingly what Markham says, it does leave very little room to bring in certain aspects of that regime. Uh, people are suggesting different ways. It's fairly early. We'll still explore them. Uh, if I were to offer a few predictions, one of the questions, does, does any of the parties appeal to the full D.C. Circuit? This is a panel that consisted of two Democrats and one Republican. Uh, currently, it's uh, my guess is uh, if this is – I know nothing about the parties – they're probably not going to because they're probably not going to get a result, a different result. If they're going to do anything, they'll try to take it to the Supreme Court. Uh, Supreme Court generally doesn't like taking kids cases that don't have splits of authority where there's one court on one side and one on the other side. 
Uh, you might think because it's politically important and it's taken a lot of attention, they might take it. In my experience, uh, you'd be surprised, unless it's a really mammoth thing, sometimes the, the political nature of a decision causes the court to stay away from it. So I think there's a pretty good chance it won't happen. And if that's the case, then frankly, we've, it's the end of this long lull we've had where we're all waiting for the court to decide. And actually politics receded and it all became law. We're now in the next phase. Now that the decision has come back, we're going to see the return of, of Congress's role in overlooking what should happen next and the agency taking a much more active role thinking about what's going to happen next. And it's returned it back to the policymaking realm instead of waiting for a court to decide. So I, I guess we'll keep trooping down the uh, dais here. Boy, that's loud. Um, thanks so much for having me here. I want, to, I want to go back to one thing that Chris said and then two points that are sort of baked into the name of the panel and the way David framed it at the outset. A uh, little technical here, but I would say it's not that the FCC can't apply the common carrier rules using the power it has. It can't apply common carrier rules using the power it chose to use here. And that's because, as Markham mentioned, the FCC could go back and say, you know, we were wrong, we're changing our mind, the circumstances have changed, whatever they want to use as a justification, and say, that broadband Internet access services should indeed be Title II services or telecom services, common carrier services. There's a lot of jargon here, but they all basically mean the same thing. They could treat those services like the, the Internet access that you and I have today, like a common carrier service, by classifying it as such, and then we'd have a very different conversation about authority. And just to put it out in, at the beginning, that's what we at Free Press think the FCC should do. Um, a lot of debate about that, and to agree with what Chris said, there's definitely a lot of political wrangling to come over that, and potentially FCC action and court action following up on that as well. So uh, it's never over until it's over, and even then it's not over at the FCC is one thing I heard one time. Back really quickly um, to the questions, as David raised them and as the panel put it, is this a, a win for the FCC? I like, you know, Chris says, yeah, it's a win and a loss. I would say it's, it's a loss for net neutrality. The rules are vacated, and I think it's pretty clear that the FCC can't reinstate them in any clean and understandable and, frankly, useful way for protecting Internet users using the authority they've been left. It's, it's a loss for net neutrality, but I would say it's, it's not a total loss for the FCC. Yes, they've been given some power and have some uh, authority to regulate broadband Internet access. Really stick to the words here, though, to regulate access. That's what we think net neutrality rules do is they protect your access to the Internet as Chris said it, and there's actually been some companies saying this too, the, the 706 route provision of the act that the court said stands up and the FCC has some authority, that, in, that could indeed allow them to regulate the Internet, period. Meaning, you know, on some theory to say, well, we're seeing less broadband deployment because of something else out there in the Internet ecosystem or some kind of more fuzzy term like that. Free press, and I, I think it's fair to say every net neutrality advocate or everyone I've talked to, is not in favor of regulating the Internet. We want to make sure that your access to the Internet is open and clear and that the broadband provider can't block you or discriminate against where you go and tell you what you can look at or how much it costs for certain websites. You know, you want Facebook, you want Twitter, that's on our social media Internet platform, and that's only an extra $5 a month, that kind of thing, when Markham talks about edge providers. So, again, there's lots of debate here. There's lots of disagreement about whether we need those kinds of rules or not. But I think it's important to note that the FCC didn't lose all power here. It's just that we think they lost the power to do the thing we want them to do in this proceeding. And they might have the ability to do some good things with Section 706 authority. Uh, they might have the ability to try some bad things as well. It's, it's more of an open question. People say they want regulatory certainty, and I think this decision gives us anything but that because the FCC has sort of a open mandate in some ways to promote broadband deployment 
Um, it's kind of like taking the FCC's indecency doctrine and taking it to the Internet. You know, we know it when we see it. Uh, if, if it's bad, we'll tell you later, and you might not know beforehand if it's a bad idea, but we'll come back and enforce something against you. I just don't know how they really do that in a very useful and helpful way for the doctrine we care so much about. <clears throat> so uh, the last time David Sohn was asking me questions was about 15 years ago when he was interviewing me for my first ever communications law job. Um, and I never really knew what he felt because, A, I got the job, but, B, by the time I got there, he had left. So, <laughs> you know, I, I, contra contrasting evidence. Uh, so thanks for having me back. Um, I, I want to sort of agree with Matt before I turn and disagree with him on a, probably a bunch of topics ultimately. And I agree that sort of what the court did was strike down, I think in his words, the thing that mattered to free press the most, uh, but resuscitated or at least uh, found a great deal of FCC authority to do other things. So that brings me to uh, David's initial opening question, which was, you know, where does net neutrality stand? And that's the question that everyone's been asking the past few days, but I think it might be the wrong question. And the, the right question is, where does the Internet stand? Where do customers' interests on the Internet stand? Where does the power of the FCC to regulate the Internet uh, in an appropriate way going forward stand? Net neutrality is a particular means to an end. It's not that. It's not the end. So fully agree, net neutrality as it has been traditionally conceived with strong anti-discrimination components uh, is unlawful under under the statute, under Section 153.51 of the statute, which says you can't treat non-common carrier service as common carrier. Uh, none of us have said this, but that, I think, is a very straightforward piece of the decision here. Uh, and there's actually very little legal question about that proposition. Um, some question whether we should have treated uh, should have treated broadband internet access as a, a Title I service rather than a Title II service. But yes, once you treat it as a, uh, a Title I service, that provision is pretty clear, and at least that section of the court's ruling, I, I think, should be relatively uncontroversial. But where does the rest of the decision leave the FCC's authority and leave consumers? Well, I happen to think that the rest of the decision is is really a victory for the FCC in many ways. Uh, the FCC can do a lot as long as it doesn't impose strict common carriage obligations. Uh, and and I've, many people have been contemplating what, what that could mean, and I think it could actually wholly reshape the, the field of the Internet. And I'm not sure – I'm sorry, I should say also, as Markham did, I represented a party, well, not an amicus in the case, uh, wrote a brief for the National Association of Manufacturers. If you want a copy, email me. I like to think of it as Fifty Shades of Net Neutrality. Um, great weekend reading. Uh, but, you know, my clients generally, I don't, I, I mean, Verizon obviously argued against Section 706 power, but, but I think the ISPs generally accept that this was the court's ruling and that there will be some FCC authority. Um, so then I want to go to Markham's suggestion that there are no rules now uh, preventing blocking or preventing, non -dis preventing discrimination. Uh, there, it's true there are no FCC rules now. Uh, there are other mechanisms, though. I think the things that consumers would worry the most about with respect to net neutrality is, will my ISP uh, sabotage entities that are trying to compete with it principally in the provision of voice service and video service, the things that ISPs tend to do otherwise? Well, if they would, we, we have entities and we have mechanisms right now of preventing anti-competitive behavior. The Federal Trade Commission does that. Section 5 of the FTC Act gives the FTC power to, uh, to take action against unfair or deceptive trade practices. That power still exists. But the principal power that's going to stop uh, sort of wanton blocking and wanton discrimination and uh, sort of the parade of horribles that we sometimes hear about is the marketplace and consumers. 
the ISPs, as a fundamental matter, just like any other business, want their service, want their product to be useful to their customers. Services are, in this case, are useful to customers when customers can use them to do the things that they want. And we, we can talk a little bit later about uh, the, the extent of competition, which is a big question in this debate. But you know, most Americans have a choice. The great vast majority, frankly, of Americans have a choice between five or more ISPs. Uh, and there are different speeds, there's different uh, characteristics, but there is at least some choice there, and customers are going to play a very important role going forward in preventing the kind of behavior that I think people suggest as the worst possible outcomes here. Thanks. So um, let me ask, just push a little bit more on on what the FCC's next steps could potentially be. One thing we've heard a couple times in in your comments is the idea of reclassification. So one question I have is, what would that involve? What would what would a procedure to do that look like? Um, another thing that the FCC had done previously before it had rules was back in 2005, it had something it called a policy statement that expressed some general principles, the idea that, that users should be able to access the content of their choice. Is there any avenue at all for the FCC to take? Uh, so, so, so first, reclassification, um, what would that process look like? And then is there anything other like a set of principles approach like it did before that, that could possibly be an option? So, excuse me. The FCC does have an open docket it, that um, uh, in the last administration, uh, the last chair had proposed to reclassify broadband internet access service as a common carrier service. And there was some substantial filings in that docket, so the FCC could uh, reanimate that docket and uh, refresh it. Um, I also think uh, this doesn't get a lot of, uh, of uh, a discussion, but the the orders that, that classified broadband internet access services, information services, are limited really to broadband internet access service. And there are things that broadband providers do that aren't broadband internet access service that could be clarified to be common carrier service that could get you some uh, amount down the road in, in helping um, create a, uh, a, a more even uh, playing field uh, with regard to content that uh, is transmitted by the providers. So that's a little uh, geeky, wonky, but I think that's a possibility. Um, and, uh, you know, that the FCC could move relatively quickly on that. On the, uh, if it doesn't, if it works under 706, uh, it, and it constitutes something like the internet policy statement, uh, the policy statement likely would have to be, uh, adopted as a, a rule, uh, with either some clarification that allows, uh, ISPs to affirmatively engage in differentiated services so that they're not common carriage services or have a rule uh, consistent with 706, a very uh, uh, t- high-level rule, no blocking, uh, and have that adjudicated on a case-by-case basis. And Chairman uh, Wheeler this week noted in a blog post that perhaps a, a, an adjudication just on a case-by-case basis would be would be appropriate, and that would not necessarily involve uh coming up with prescriptive regulations. So the FCC has a lot of uh, tools at its disposal to to um, to move forward, but if it wants to have no non-discrimination rules, it, it really needs to do some sort of clarification or reclassification of the of the of the broadband providers uh, services. Um, it's it's an interesting question. 
if they want to reclassify the Internet as essentially put in the same category as telephone service, um, there are people who advocate that and people think that's a possibility. Um, I actually think that they have a couple of pro- – there's a, a few obstacles to the FCC. There's a Supreme Court decision that stands in the way. It's called Brandex. And there's a lot of very technical things we can say that it, it's not an absolute obstacle to them. But, in fact, when the FCC – I wrote a recent Law Review article on this, analyzing this, and one of the things it's that – when the SEC proposed it, they relied almost entirely on the dissent from a Supreme Court opinion. And just in a general matter, building your argument on the losing side of a Supreme Court case is rarely a successful strategy. And so it's one of the – it's not impossible, but I would say that they've got some obstacles to overcome. The bigger question to me is um, whether the FCC politically wants to put its energy to doing that. Because right now the, the, the new chairman has come in. He's got a little over, a little under three years until the end of this administration, at which point the next president gets to designate the chairman. And he has made the focus of his chairmanship what he calls the IP transition. We've traditionally thought the voice telephone network as the fundamental connecting technology that brings the country together. And as if, uh, if anyone's looked at it, you know, I think in many places it's 6% people subscribe to, to that voice line. And those numbers are plummeting and it's, it's transitioning. The main connecting technology now is the internet, not the telephone system. And that raises a whole bunch of questions about how we've handled certain things in the past through the voice network, such as emergency response, 911, universal service, disaster response, disability access. And there are a whole bunch of issues that are much broader than network neutrality. And it's quite possible that the chairman may decide that he will fold this into a broader discussion of how we should be thinking about the Internet and make it part of a broader debate. Someone told me that when Chairman Janikowski came in, he did that, it began with what we call the National Broadband Plan. How are we going to increase high-speed Internet to the entire country? And then brought up secondary, and the second major initiative in the space was network neutrality. I'm told that he was counseled by some people who've been through that, he was asked, do you want to be known as the National Broadband Plan Chairman or the Network Neutrality Chairman? I actually think Chairman Wheeler faces a fairly similar choice. Do you want to be known as the IP Transition Chairman or do you want to be re-energized, pull yourself back in Network Neutrality? And looking forward, I can't, who knows when you predict the future, but there's a real chance that people want to get past this and make it part of a much broader debate where this isn't the sole focus of what we're talking about. We should break out of our pattern of just marching down the table each time. But um, so uh, where to begin? There are uh, – there's a lot of truth to what Chris said about the choices before this chairman and the political consequences of it, I think, in both ways. If he doesn't reclassify, then we think you can't really get anything like net neutrality back. And I would say, does he want to be the chairman who said the Internet is now the discrimination zone where you can be discriminated against by your carrier for purposes they'll claim are innovative and saving you money or whatever and that we would say are exactly the opposite? But putting aside that political question just for a second, because that is the important thing, especially up here in this neighborhood and in the long-term discussion to come, I want to go back to Brandex for a second. Now, the dissent in that case in the Supreme Court in 2005 was Justice Scalia. I think that should be noted. uh, wasn't some kind of, you know, raving liberal net neutrality fan or anything like that. It was Justice Scalia saying, of course broadband is a telecom service. The FCC read the law wrong. How can they possibly say this? The majority opinion is Justice Thomas, and he doesn't say and really can't say because of Chevron and other things that the FCC made the right call. He says this is the FCC's call to make. 
the FCC has the discretion to choose whether it should be a telecom service or an information service or it was a cable service in some people's mind when it was offered by cable operators. So Brand X doesn't stand for the fact that the FCC got it right. It stands for the fact that the FCC gets to make that call in the first place, unless you believe Justice Scalia, which I do, which is that it's saying that they don't have discretion here. The, the statute is not ambiguous. Broadband is clearly a telecom service. Going back to David's point here a second ago, though, and, you know, what happens next, everything Markham and Chris said about the process for reclassification is true. There are, there are dockets the FCC has open. I imagine they would probably take comment again rather than just say we have a full record on this from 2010, but who knows, they, they could try to move more quickly than that. I don't think they will move super quick based on what we've heard thus far. Uh, to say at the end, though, when it comes to discrimination and, you know, not really being able to get that back through 706, and I think it's really hard to dispute that. No matter what we all might think about the legal positions, it's, it's very unclear to me that the FCC could do anything like prevent discrimination online under 706 or anything short of reclassification. And what that means is, and why that's important, and to go back to some of Russ's points too, take, for example, a competitor to the, your existing Internet provider's voice service, something like Skype or FaceTime or some kind of chat application. We saw this with AT&T last year, and we were just about ready to file a complaint, and then AT&T started to, uh, to our mind, happily change its practices. They don't have to outright block that to make your life more difficult as a consumer and to make choices less available to you. They can just say, you know, you're welcome to use as much FaceTime as you want, as much Skype as you want. All you have to do first, this is not, I think it's not counterfactual at all. This is, I think, what happened. All you have to do first is pay us for unlimited voice minutes. So as long as you're paying for voice minutes you don't want to use, you're free to use as much of the, of the chat application as an alternative as you want. That's why net neutrality really is based on preserving protections against discrimination, unreasonable discrimination, as the telecom lawyers would say. Uh, but, you know, the, the simple no-blocking rule that they may or may not be able to reanimate in Markham's term uh, is not really good enough to protect you against that kind of behavior. One last thing on Russ's point earlier, when it comes to competition in the market, yeah, we can dispute that and talk about that. It's not very competitive uh, by most people's stretches because, I mean, you have the wireless industry alone, for example, is more concentrated than autos, banking, oil, airlines, not really paragons of competition where people are really happy with their customer service. But in any case, no matter how many choices you have with a cell phone provider, for example, we have admittedly, you know, at least four national carriers and some other local carriers as well. Very few people in the voice world would say, you know what, it's okay then. If Verizon Wireless wants to block my calls to Pizza Hut because they have a deal with Domino's instead, that's cool. I'll just switch to AT&T. I'll just switch to Sprint. You know, there are some things that communications networks just aren't supposed to do. And what Verizon said when they were arguing this case was, but for these rules, we would be exploring these kinds of arrangements. Not necessarily to right away block somebody, but to find a way to get a little bit more money out of a particular edge provider uh, which, again, means, you know, pick your favorite, Facebook, Google, Pizza Hut, Domino's, mom and pop in the garage who want to launch some kind of, well, that's not as likely, two kids in the garage who want to launch some kind of Internet startup. And the FCC was trying to prevent those people from having to pay into the system. That's what we've lost now. So first, I, because I represent some wireless folks, I actually, I think customer satisfaction rates are relatively high when J.D. Power and others, uh, we have very high majority saying they're satisfied or very satisfied with service. But, but I want to put that aside. I just have to put in that small plug. Um, on the, I want to get back to the reclassification question. Uh, first, I want to really second what 
Chris, you said about the sort of – he didn't use this phrase, but the political oxygen in the room. Uh, having worked at the commission, the FCC, it really is the case that there's a prioritization issue. There are relatively limited staff resources, especially as you get higher and higher into the decision-making levels. And uh, having the IP transition, having the incentive – the spectrum – incentive spectrum auctions going on, these are big issues that take up a lot of time. Uh, a, a renewed net neutrality or reclassification fight really would take a lot of energy, and it would – it would, it would in very real ways, I think, affect the chairman's agenda, and that's a choice he will have to make. On the legal issues associated with reclassification, I agree with what everyone has said about the process, about the, on, the open docket and so forth. Um, but I always the, the reclassification question always puzzles me a little bit because it is it is in the context of net neutrality always framed, uh, and I think the words used, someone used earlier in this panel was we should reclassify in order to adopt non-discrimination rules, or we can reclassify so that we can do X. And to me, that is that gets the that gets the way we do law and the way we look at statutes really up on its head. The way this works is that the FCC is a creature of Congress, not the reverse. Congress set up definitions and says to the FCC, figure out how these definitions fit, and then we will tell you in, through our other laws what obligations apply to the different to the different pools, the different uh, buckets of, of services. And the FCC's job then is to say, to make its best call and say, this is an information service or this is a telecommunication service, and then say, okay, and under Congress's rules, here's what applies to it. And there's something to me extremely outcome-oriented about saying, well, we didn't get to do the thing we want by giving our best shot at applying the statute to these services the first time. So in order to be able to get into the regulatory authority bucket we want to be in, we're going to change our mind, seems to be the exact kind of outcome-oriented decision-making that proponents of net neutrality would get very aggravated about and rightly very angry about uh, if it were pursued in the pursuit of some other end. So I'm, I'm very reluctant to... Or promote or countenance a regime in which the FCC just decided, here's the authority we want, and in order to fit it into the congressional scheme, here's what we're going to decide. So I, I guess I'm skeptical there. Beyond that, the only other point that I think hasn't been made, and, I'll, and then I'll wrap up, is that uh, let's say the FCC were to do this. So we have I, – I agree with Markham that we need at least one more round of comment, given the docket's a few years old. Uh, the FCC issues an order. Let's say the best case is that that's third or fourth quarter this year – best case in terms of quickness. I don't think this would be a good case. Uh, <laughs> you know, the fastest they do that would be the end of this year. Uh, that would lead to a lot of litigation as well, not only on the reclassification itself, but on all the things the FCC would need to do to make that work. So in 2010, when Chairman Janikowski proposed this, uh, part of his proposal was to use what's called the FCC's forbearance authority to eliminate, to cross out a lot of the requirements that would otherwise apply to a telecommunication service. Um, all of those, well, I don't know all of those, but many of those would also be challenged by people who th would think that those obligations should still apply. That leads us, I think, to another year or two of litigation and three, in all three or maybe more years of uncertainty. That's, that's not a great course, I think. So talking about all, all that prospect of possible future litigation or, uh, or future FCC proceedings, I guess I'd, I'd like to change gears and ask where this decision leaves the environment and the marketplace. Uh, policymakers often hear that regulatory certainty is a really important goal. Um, how does this decision leave regulatory certainty in the wake of all that potential litigation? And how might we see both, uh, both broadband providers and edge providers, providers of online services, respond? Yeah, let's go. Okay. Let's go so back I've been nominated to start again to mix things up. It's my uh, fault. I, I'm the one saying we have to go. Now we're just going to go this way, right? So, uh, so my sense is that you know, some of my clients would have liked the decision to come out otherwise. Clearly, 
but it has come out and it is the way it is. And my sense is that the best course now is to see where things, how things fall out. The FCC should, should think about its Section 706 authority, should think especially probably about Chairman Wheeler, Chairman Wheeler's uh, ex post uh, approach of adjudicating cases as they come up, just like the common law has done for centuries with respect to all other kinds of products. Uh, and I think it actually leaves the Internet in a relatively good place where there is a cop on the beat. There are multiple cops on the beat, in fact. I mentioned the FTC earlier, and uh, the FCC clearly has authority uh, to do a lot of things. And uh, I, and I think it I, – I think, and, and I know Markham disagrees, I'm sorry, I know uh, Matt disagrees, but I think that this regime really can protect against the, the kinds of things that the average person would really worry about with respect to net neutrality, the crushing of the competitor. I actually don't know if I buy the pizza store analogy and uh, whether I think that that would be outside the ken of the FCC's authority under Section 706 now. I think they can guard against that, uh, and there's a lot of power. So I actually think that the market's in a pretty good place. Uh, stocks didn't really react much to this decision, uh, either on the ISP side or on the edge provider side. And I think we'll, we should wait and see how things go before jumping into another three- or four-year fight. Much as it would be good for, for my, my pocketbook and my daughter's college fund, I, I think um, uh, constant litigation is not the way to govern, govern one of the most important industries in the country. One way to avoid that would be everybody to stop suing when they get a rule that's understandable, but we don't, we don't get that. I don't bill by the hour anymore, so I don't have any such uh, college fund potential from this. That's so not my interest here. I, I'll try to be briefer this time. I mean, I think that, as I said earlier, this does not actually create a lot of certainty for people um, because it does not tell them what the FCC can or cannot prohibit um, very clearly. You know, it's basically saying you can prevent some bad things from happening, but we're not going to tell you in advance what those bad things are because the tail end of the D.C. Circuit opinion, uh, the, the important part, not just the tail end, just said you can't have a rule against blocking. You can't have a rule, at least in the way you uh, tried to do it this time, you can't have a rule against non-discrimination. So I don't think there is actually a lot of certainty. I, I you know, certainly stocks did not jump all over the place other than right after the decision. I think there was a little bit of a spike for some and a drop for others, but, uh, you know, Markham is more the authority on this than I am about what Internet companies, if we can even use that term anymore. I mean, who's not on the Internet now? But, you know, what some of the biggest Internet companies might think about the decision. Um, I just don't know that the uncertainty actually benefits anybody. Uh, we have had kind of a status quo. You know, Chairman Wheeler noted the fact that the broadband providers have promised not to do bad things, and you can take some comfort from that if you want. Um, but I don't think that uh, it's very comforting for the longer-term prospects of companies, again, quote-unquote, experimenting with new ways to try to monetize the network and take that money out of the pockets of consumers and out of the pockets of the innovators who are on the edges of the network. <clears throat> well, I thought one of the really profound um, parts of the D.C. Circuit's opinion was they upheld the, DC, uh, the FCC's rationale, one of the rationales for developing the regulations, which was that not that uh, the rule regulations were needed because of the market power of any of the stakeholders. It, it noted, in fact, that some of the uh, actors at the edge of the Internet, from a market power perspective, are pretty big players relative to some of the ISPs. Rather, it, it, it anchored its uh, rationale for the rules in the terminating access monopoly or the gatekeeper role that the ISPs have. So whether there's a thousand or millions of flowers blooming at the edge, ultimately every one of the edge providers has to deal when they're trying to reach me, for instance, with one provider, Verizon. So for regard, with regard to everybody at the edge of the network, they're dealing with 
a monopoly for every one of their customers that is trying to reach them. And I think that was a profound uh, uh, part of the D.C. Circuit decision. I don't think it was necessarily one that was obvious that the D.C. Circuit would uphold, uphold the commission. And if one is to say that that is now uh, the precedent and the D.C. Circuit, which it is, and that the FCC continues in that, I, I think it does lead one then to think about how to enforce that, how to guard against that. And, uh, you know, there are uh, obviously other ways the uh, Verizon and others have said let's have this regulated by the FTC. We'll, we'll agree to some rules in our terms of service, and those can be enforced on the ex post facto rule. But for the FCC's um, universe, I think they have to do something with that rationale. So whether that's to have a no-blocking regime uh, or to do some sort of Title II thing, that, that, begs, that does beg a result in some way to have some sort of enforceable rule, and I think the FCC will have to deal with that. To answer David's question very directly, what impact is it going to have in the business environment? I think we actually have an interesting experiment going on right now, and that's Europe. Uh, Europe has largely adopted the rule that Markham and, and Matt are suggesting, which is they have folded the Internet into the traditional rules governing the telephone network. And we see here a certain amount of media cycle how we're behind Europe, and they've got these OECD rankings. But what's interesting is they measure at the 200 kilobyte per second level. That is their standard, which is... By most people's standards, it's, it's crawling by modern internet standards. You can't do anything modern with that. If you go to Europe, they have a very different discourse. They're actually very much in a panic about why they're behind the U.S. Because if right now you look, their investment in networks is one-half per capita what it is in the U.S., their 30 megabit, 25 megabit coverage is one-half what it is in the U.S. Their rural coverage is one-quarter what it is in the U.S. And, in fact, what they're saying is not just in the infrastructure, in the apps. Where is the Google, the Facebook of Europe? And they're actually concerned not just on the infrastructure side, but also the other side. And so, I mean, I don't, this data points, Europe's different. I don't mean to suggest, and I, of course, like I'm an academic, I'm doing a study on this right now because everyone wants to know what's going on. But my point is that, you know, there is some reason in other parts of the world where they're actually trying a regime where they fold it back in the telephone regime, where they're clearly not happy with the outcome and are looking for alternative paths. And it opens up a really interesting discussion we probably should have about possible futures going forward. I just say on that point, though, about Europe, I don't want to debate different uh, competition points in Europe either, but you know, Google and Facebook, let's just pick on those two, grew up in an era when we had first DSL and cable at some earlier point classified as something, but they weren't clearly in the information services bucket yet, and a lot of telephone offerings were still uh, subject to common carrier rules. And then we had this middle period where we've had the Internet principles. We've now had the open Internet rules in place for a couple years all of which is to say that they have grown up in an environment where you don't need permission from your broadband provider to innovate. So I think, you know, it's, yeah, there's, there may be questions to ask about why don't we have as big a presence in the, uh, let's call it the app economy from Europe or other places. I wouldn't say that we have such a big presence here because the Internet was somehow more under the control of broadband providers. I'd say exactly the opposite. We have had innovation without permission here because of a series of changing and yet ultimately somewhat consistent protections for innovation online uh, in the U.S. Internet access ecosystem. Thanks. So uh, I'd like to change gears a little bit since we're sitting here um, in the halls of Congress and ask about what this decision means, not just specifically for net neutrality, but more generally for the state of our communications law and the, Commun and the Communications Act and for the possibility of Congress taking a look at updating the act. Chris, you mentioned the uh, the transition to all IP networks. I guess one question is, 
setting aside again the specific issue of net neutrality, how does this decision help either clarify or confuse what the authority and role are of the FCC going forward? We are moving to a world where the Internet is becoming the primary communications medium. The FCC is our national communications regulator. Uh, are, 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 is, is this decision and other decisions helping move us towards a more coherent picture of what the FCC's proper role is, uh, or is this an area where some congressional action is necessary? Well, w- one aspect, you know, speaking in the halls of Congress, it did clarify a couple things. As, as Russell mentioned, some people wanted this to shift from the FCC to the FTC. Interestingly, from a congressional action standpoint, that would have no, very few implications on the Senate because the Senate Commerce, Science, and Transportation Committee has jurisdiction over both. On the House side, it would have shifted jurisdiction of which age committee was responsible from the Energy and Commerce Committee to the Judiciary Committee, which would have been a big change in terms of how the processes would happen here. As of now, that didn't happen. Uh, the, the D.C. Circuit left the FCC with jurisdiction here, and it remains within the jurisdiction of energy and commerce, which the leadership on the House has indicated we need to start rethinking the laws and moving forward. So if I had to guess, one of the there's two possible outcomes. One is the traditional narrative which you hear outside the Beltway right now, which is we have split government where the different houses of Congress are controlled by different parties, and it's an election year, so therefore after about June, everything shifts to campaigns, and this is a very difficult time to get something done, and it's very unlikely to proceed, in which case the statements that take place in Congress and other places will be more or less about, not about getting things done, but about positioning, imaging for different voting constituencies. I actually brought a class to Washington, D.C. last week, and we met with both the majority and minority staff of the House and Senate Commerce Committees. And what was striking to me is they all said that this is an area where there is broad bipartisan consensus. The kind of dissension that characterizes other parts of the government over more controversial policies are far less important, and in fact, there's much more room for agreement here. And my challenge or my invitation or my prayer to Congress and all of you here is to prove those statements right and prove the skeptics wrong, is that the leadership has has opened up a broad-based discourse about what the future may hold. I think a lot of people agree that right now applying rules that were written in 1934 to a new technology that didn't exist is probably a bad idea. How those words apply will be an accident because no one really had them in mind. And the rules we had draw a distinction between cable and uh, telephone-based services where most consumers at this point don't care which way they're getting it. They just want the Internet. And so I think that there's a real opportunity here, and I think there's some reason for hope that this Congress can actually, at a minimum, big rewrites take time to take a few steps, positive steps down the line towards promoting meaningful reform, which I think everyone in the industry thinks probably is eventually going to happen and, frankly, needs to happen because the Internet didn't exist in 1934. Christopher, I was just curious. Did your the, the folks that your students were talking to, were they speaking specifically about net neutrality or were they speaking broadly about communications law issues? I think they were speaking broadly about communications law issues. And I think that, obviously, there's individual issues which will divide any committee. But, in fact, what you see is, is there's much more room. In a, if there's room, broader agreement, there's more room for compromise and there's more room for discussion and, and working things out. And um, I remain hopeful. I, I guess the reason I ask is that, you know, the – it's long been said that this issue has been less partisan and the FCC. It said within the FCC and with respect to Congress that the issues tend to cross party lines more. Uh, the 96 Act certainly was uh, not sort of an easily broken down by party uh, piece of legislation. But 
net neutrality really seems sometimes like a, a bomb in that room, and I, I wonder about its effect on broader cooperation on these sets of issues. And I, I'm not a Hill expert, and I won't purport to say what the Hill will do, but I just <clears> wonder how the injection of this issue back into the political field will affect the prospects for a rewrite. Well, you know, looking at it from a from a normative perspective, I think there is broad consensus that uh, that ISP should not block content or significantly degrade content, that there should be a minimal level of service that uh, edge providers uh, have the right to access their consumers and consumers have the right to access those edge providers. I, my sense is that there's broad consensus about that. Um, I would further say that I think there's fairly broad consensus that there should not be arbitrary discrimination against similarly situated entities at the edge. So if you have two entities at the edge that are providing the same sort of video service with the same sort of characteristics, then ISP really shouldn't say, okay, we're going to charge one X and another Y. And the difficulty the FCC will have and and policymakers will have is the court actually went out of its way to say, since these aren't common carriage, we're striking down the common carriage rules, Verizon has the authority and should have the ability to charge similarly situated entities completely different prices. Now, that is true that as a matter of law, they're able to do that now. But I think there's, there's a more normative perspective from policymakers that that probably shouldn't be the case. Can I, can I speak to that? So I want to speak to blocking for a second. And Markham talked about charging one edge provider X and another Y. Well, if you're allowed to charge for service, that is blocking. The FCC said that in 2010. It's true. If you say you can only come on my network if you pay me X, that is tantamount to blocking. And I think everyone understands that. So then the question really becomes, can ISPs really block? I really don't know. Frankly, I know a very few. I can think of very few cases in which ISPs would want to block. My guess is that the cases I would think of would be cases that most people would would agree blocking might be appropriate. I mean, I'm I'm thinking about child pornography and things like that. ISPs don't generally want to block. Uh, They, as I said earlier, they get revenues from customers wanting to use their services. They recognize that in a nation of 300 some odd million people, people have all kinds of different interests and their customers are going to want to look at different things. Beyond that, I think it's really worth remembering the transparency rule remains in effect. So if ISPA blocks access to foxnews.com or msnbc.com or any of a million sites, that's going in its policy, and it's going to be well-known. And I think we can be fairly sure that Senator Franken or Representative Eshoo or others are going to be hauling those ISPs up very quickly and saying, what are you doing, if customers themselves don't say, what are you doing? So I guess I have a lot of doubt both about the incentive and the de facto ability to block and really charge, uh, and, and charge A, X amount, and B, Y amount. What net neutrality really is about in these cases is not blocking, is not uh, sort of perniciously degrading degrading content. What it might be about is – so today in the news you may have seen Google has this new contact lens that can monitor glucose levels and use a wireless transmitter to send it to your doctor. that kind of thing, maybe maybe we want prioritized uh, access for those those packets that are flowing across the web. So maybe we want to be able to have rooms full of people monitoring in real time what my uh, what my pacemaker is saying, so that they know maybe before I even do uh, that there's an issue going on. Hypothetically, uh, those kind of that's the kind of issues and those are the kind of services that the ISPs I talk with want to provide. Those aren't degrading. Those, those aren't degrading anyone's content affirmatively, and they're not going to degrade service uh, indirectly by using up all the network resources. We're not talking about the network we had when this debate started around 2005. We're talking about a network, as someone said earlier, where vast majorities of Americans have access to 10, 20, 30, 50, 100 megabytes per second service. 
uh, it's a completely different web, and I don't think there's any real risk that prioritizing some of these little services really is going to relegate anyone to uh, de facto blocking. So I just when people talk about net neutrality, it's very common to go right into the sort of evil machinations that we can imagine. Uh, there's no ability to do that, really. There's no incentive to do that. What net neutrality, I think, is really about for the providers is the ability to uh, get the services that customers want to them more quickly. Let me pick up on one on, on one quick yeah, thing Russ said, um, ask a question about it, and then I am going to turn to the audience for questions. So if folks in the audience have questions, be thinking about that, and I'll give you an opportunity for that in just a sec. Russ, you mentioned the transparency portion of the rule, and I'm interested if other panelists have thoughts about the one portion of the rules that were not struck down, uh, how useful they are, and how much of a check they potentially provide on behavior. I mean, yeah, they have to tell you if they're blocking you or if they're discriminating. I, it doesn't give me a lot of comfort. You know, it's kind of like, here's how we're messing with your service. And, I, again, we, I don't really want to get into this debate because it's a whole separate debate, but we can talk about how many choices people really have in their broadband provider. You know, five, sure, maybe if we count all the wireless ones and there are differences between what you can do with wireless and wireline. Um, you know, it's something. It's just, to me, it doesn't offer a lot of comfort to say that I will now know how they are trying to keep me from going certain places, or if not keep me from going certain places, at least take a few more nickels out of my pocket for getting to them. The, the managed services example is what Russ is talking about with the contact lenses. I think I just want to stop there for a second and say, if indeed we do have more abundant capacity these days, I don't know why we would have to prioritize something like that, because it would probably be a relatively low-level data usage. But, you know, the FCC and the rules that were uh, I think struck down on this point too, although the court didn't really address them, did make allowances for other services. So everything that you transmit Today, as data doesn't have to go over, quote, the Internet, you can have a separate channel for things like that. And that, that's something FCC rules already allowed, even though it wasn't necessarily crystal clear how those kinds of things would work going forward. I actually think the transparency rules are potentially very important. Um, there is a, a, a British ISP called PlusNet. has the highest customer satisfaction ratings in all of Britain. And what they do is they prioritize service but clearly disclose what they're doing, and they appeal to a certain kind of customer. They said this is about, they can't say exactly, but most nights, most Friday nights, this time of day you get this speed, this speed, and they work it out, and you can't exactly predict exactly what the traffic is going to be, but they give you a pretty good idea. And I'll tell you who they cater to. The, the priority, they use it to prioritize traffic, and they give it to online gamers. They, they give that the highest priority. They're appealing to a very small set of the overall world. But that, to me, is one of the interesting questions we face, which is the old telephone world was sort of a one-size-fits-all regulatory regime. Here's a standardized product at one price. Everyone gets it. You can't change off it. You can't enhance it. You can't degrade it, even if people need different things. And uh, the nice example contrast in the modern world for me is we should see a proliferation of business models like the Amazon Kindle. Normally, if you have a reader, uh, a tablet, if you download apps, content, you're paying the minutes, you're paying the bandwidth, all that stuff, the, the limitations in your plan apply. Amazon has said, you know what? We want to pay that freight. We want to make it easier for you to receive that content. Uh, they may, they've changed, this has changed a number of times and business models change, but I guess my reaction is, they should be allowed to try that. Maybe that's creating new value for consumers and they can negotiate a different deal and you get a different kind of product that way. And that is a form of prioritized service or discriminatory service because one person gets service that doesn't count against your minutes and some don't. And in my world, I guess, you know, we're, the, the Internet's gone so many different directions. I would encourage that kind of experimentation, not discouraging. 
So I, I think transparency does have an ability to be helpful in that there is a sort of name and shame component to things that if there's uh, bad behavior that it, it has a corrective ability with, with uh, corporations. I think where it it may not go far enough, it probably doesn't go far enough, is creating enough certainty for innovators to know what the rules of the road are when they're planning where to put resources and where to put innovation. So um, I think... And, and I think the FCC throughout every administration has recognized that, right? There, there need to be some baseline rules, and I think the ISPs recognize there have to be some baseline rules. How those are enforced uh, is where the debate is. But I think the norms here, again, going back to a normative discussion, are there should be enough certainty so that the people at the edge can rely on something more than just name and shame when they're thinking about how to allocate their, their resources and their R&D budgets. Can I ask Chris a quick question? That, that is plus net? In the UK, is that a facilities-based provider, or are they on the Open Reach network and they're sort of an over-the-top ISP? Uh, they are a facilities-based net, uh, network. Mm-hmm. What's fascinating, and this is, you know, these are the facts that people will interpret them different ways. Actually, they were acquired by British Telecom. Mm-hmm. Uh, as of now, they've kept them as a completely separate entity. They've wanted to, they've tried to learn from them and they're actually trying to preserve that culture because they're worried that if they fold them into the larger company, it'll just disappear and become like the rest of BT. So it, but it is a facility. So in, in all those cases, I just want to say it's not that Amazon shouldn't be allowed to pay the freight and that that isn't necessarily off the table. My concern is when Amazon is paying for your connection and you are also paying for your connection because if you stay under your data cap, you don't get a big refund check at the end of the month. That's the kind of, again, experimentation that maybe is uh, should be allowable in some cases, but in our current system, I think, just doesn't actually save people money. All right. I'd like to give members of the audience an opportunity to ask questions. Are there folks who have questions? And I think, is there a microphone over there? Tim, do we have a mic? Yeah. They're running for the exits instead of the mic. <laughs> Yeah, I think I think I see a question over here. John, is that yes? Well, the, the court did give some guidance. It, it pointed to Selco, which is what the FCC relied on, which is a recent case that sort of gets to the same question. And it, the court noted that in the Selco case, the ISPs were allowed to engage in commercially reasonable. That was the standard, something that was commercially reasonable uh, differentiation. And the court noted that in the non-discrimination provision that in the open Internet rules, they really used the common carriage language of unreasonable discrimination. And so, you know, theoretically, there is something, and it noted that there's a gray area, and indeed the FCC, it noted, gets discretion, gets, gets discretion how it defines that. So somewhere that's not unreasonable discrimination, that's closer to commercially reasonable, I think the, the court would say to the FCC, you'll, if, if you can move toward that, we'll give you discretion on, on whether you call that common carriage or not. So to try to put it even more simply, if the company has to do the carry the service, if they have to do the deal, it's common carriage. If they have discretion to negotiate terms, possibly refuse, if they have room to maneuver, then you can potentially get out of common carriage. But if you have to take it, it's illegal under this ruling. 
Any other questions in the audience? See one over here. That's an interesting question for somebody like Comcast, NBC, Universal, who has movie properties as well as an ISP access network. So I, could they? I think sure. And, and most importantly, the 706 route leaves open the possibility of an argument to the FCC. Pirated content on the Internet is slowing our, is decreasing the studio's willingness to put it out there. People don't get good content. So therefore, they don't adopt broadband. I mean, it's, it's the, the kind of thing that Verizon in the, in the case called a triple cushion shot. And it, it, admittedly, it's a long chain of, of arguments to have to make. But you could go to the FCC and say, you got to block piracy more strongly because otherwise people won't deploy broadband. There just won't be the incentive. And that, that, that's the kind of thing I started out by saying is, you know, the, the sort of thing, the, the, the mischief that we wouldn't want to see out of a 706 regime, um, along with a lot of other people who fought against SOPA and PIPA. So... I, I can't speak to what ISPs will or won't do, but as a legal matter, the decision actually I don't think changes their ability. So the, the Open Internet rules adopted in 2010 uh, contained express exceptions for the either unlawful content or the unlawful transmission of lawful content, the latter category I think meaning uh, transfers that were in, in violation of, of copyright and other intellectual property requirements. So uh, that was already an, a carve-out from the rules, and I think whatever they can do today, they probably could have done a week ago. Yeah, I think that's right. The law didn't protect copyright infringing material. The net neutrality rules didn't. But now there is this avenue for saying the law should do more to stop piracy, as Hollywood would say. Yeah, I, you know, this is where I think I disagree with Russ in that um, I, one could see because uh, ISPs rely on local franchises and local rights of way that in certain communities, ISPs will be incentivized to cater to their communities to block certain types of content that in that community is not considered to be acceptable content. Um, and I think the order was very careful, even when it described lawful content, blocking unlawful content or blocking the transmission of unlawful of, of the unlawful transmission of lawful content. There's very few um, categories of content that one would put in that category. I wouldn't put copyright in that category because an ISP doesn't know ex, uh, in, ex ante whether the transmission of a copyrighted work is unlawful or not. Uh, they don't happen to know who the rights holder is or whether there's a license. Child pornography really is the only thing that sort of comes to mind as something that's clearly unlawful uh, on its face. Um, so one could see things that are uh, that in certain communities are not uh, acceptable uh, being blocked or degraded. And, and Verizon, in fact, in their docket noted that they might want to provide a service that would just go to sort of a family-friendly ISP service for a community and say this service is just going to go to family-friendly sites, right? And in that community, that might be okay. The question is if you are in a community that doesn't have a lot of ISP competition uh, and you want to go to something other than a family-friendly site, do you have recourse under the rules? No. So to me, the real issues have left to do with law more to do with business which is uh, ISPs 
gain nothing directly to their bottom line by blocking the, car- the carriage of illegal content, and they piss off their customers. And that there is a misalignment of interest. It's interesting. There's actually some studies. They've done this in uh, – France has done a law called Hadopi, which is a three-strikes law, that if the, the content provider finds that there's an infringing person, they get a letter saying, did you know this is infringing? You really should stop. And the third time, they're supposed to cut them off. Actually, there's some empirical evidence that suggests that it actually has an impact. It actually stop- helps stop a degree of piracy. Even if it works, the ISPs really don't want to be caught in the middle between the content provider and the end user. What's more interesting is maybe they could enter into a cooperative arrangement where it's like, look, this is worth something to the content provider. Maybe they make a contract with them to do it to sort of make them whole. The only question I can see is, does it make that kind of business arrangement easier by removing some of the overhanging blocking rules, particularly in the rule of ambiguous legality? Maybe, but that's not really what these rules have been about. I see another question in the back there. So the question is, is that something the FCC may be attracted to? Yeah, I, I just I think that's right. I mean, exactly. The FCC wouldn't then have to readopt net neutrality rules, but we think they need to clarify their authority because it would actually, I would say help. Chris would probably say hurt, but it would clarify their role in the IP transition. And it, it's not results-based. I don't get to say this every day, but I would stand with Justice Scalia there and say they should read the law correctly and do it not because there's a result at the end, but because the law is, in fact, technology-neutral it's not from 1934 only. It's also 1996. And, you know, we had the Internet and we had people pretty smart crafting technology-neutral laws that we think are still good enough today to account for um, changes in transmission methods, but not really a change in the underlying use and function of the network, which is to send my information to you and yours back to me. Well, if I, I, I take the question as, as sort of adopting or endorsing the idea I suggested, which is make this part of a broader discourse of rethinking the Internet broadly. And what's fascinating to me is we see an alignment of the need to do that coming out of both the chairmanship of the, the chairman's office of the FCC and out of the House leadership, that it is becoming time. You know, we've, we've twisted the old rules and stretched them as far as we have. We, we lived through this with cable. 
Cable came in the 50s. We hemmed and hawed for about 30 years until finally says, we need to actually create rules made for cable. And I think we're seeing the exact same thing happen here. We've lived under the old regime. We've stretched it, twisted it, folded, spindled, mutilated as far as we can. And it may just be time. The chairman sees time. The House Energy and Commerce Committee sees it's time to sit down and think about from, not from the previous world, but ground up, square one, clean slate rewrite, what should we do with the Internet? I certainly think that uh, this is a time for, that the FCC is going to have to take to think about what its Section 706 authority means and how it changes, uh, as you say, uh, its approach to a whole range of issues. And just to give you one example, uh, another case that we haven't discussed today but, but is a big case pending in the Tenth Circuit having to do with universal service and intercarrier compensation. That uh, Section 250 – I'll speak to the USF piece of it. Section 254 of the Act tells the FCC in quite some detail – how to set up a subsidy system to make sure uh, all Americans have access to uh, communication service. Historically, that was telephone service. In 2011, after a long process, the FCC issued a very large order shifting that program to uh, to, to aim it at broadband services. Uh, that issue and the FCC's authority to do that and the specific ways in which it has done it uh, has been pending before the Tenth Circuit, which heard argument a couple of months ago. Uh, lots of open questions. Uh, Yesterday, uh, sorry, Tuesday's decision may uh, really change the dynamics in that case because suddenly it's not as much a case about what Section 254 says about the FCC's authority and how it must structure its program. Suddenly the FCC has much less bounded authority under Section 706. And actually just before this panel started, the FCC's counsel sent a letter to the Tenth Circuit saying, hey, just want to point out this new case that gives us all this new authority in this area. You know, that that should influence your decision. Uh, I don't think USF is alone. I think there's a whole range of issues where we now – have a, a new sort of font of authority, and we have to see how it will be used. And it's, I don't want to say it's unlimited, I, and I suspect in many cases I'll be writing comments to the FCC explaining why it can't do what it wants to do. Uh, in fact, I think there's a risk that we're going to transgress what's known as the, and the non-delegation doctrine in administrative law, which effectively says Congress can't just give an agency free reign without providing it any standards. That might be what 706 looks like, given the reading the D.C. Circuit has given it. But, yes, these are a host of questions we're going to have to all together address in the coming years. Other questions? I think we have time for one or two more, maybe. Yep, one here on the aisle. I actually think the, it's the opposite incentive. If, if you thought that last, that the Verizons and the Comcast of the world, the people who provide the last mile of service to end users, were subject to regulation, you might not want in the previous world to vertically integrate, because then all of a sudden you're swept into that whole world of potential regulation. One of the things about the decision that's potentially the farthest reaching is that it potentially expands the reach to anything that affects the Comcast and the horizons, the horizons of the world. So it's not just them, but the things that influence what they do. And why do we protect applications and content and created them access? Because it affects what they do. Well, so do broadband, so do backbone providers. So do content and application providers in the raw. And the question is, how far are we going to read this sort of 
what we normally think of as ancillary authority or necessary and proper authority attached to that. Now, we have a bunch of cases saying, well, they have no jurisdiction over copyright, they have no jurisdiction over devices. Well, but then they can say, well, it's not about copyright, it's about a contract between this company and that company. Is that enough an effect on, according to the statute, infrastructure investment and competition in local telephone and telecommunications? Does that have enough of an impact to bring it within the FCC's jurisdiction recognized by the D.C. Circuit under Section 706? And the answer is potentially yes, based on how these other cases come out. So in my opinion, to answer your direct question, does it make it more likely to consolidate? I actually think there makes it they were reluctant to consolidate before. Now they're potentially regulated whether they consolidate or not. It may. The bigger point to me is a bunch of players who didn't think they had to worry about what the FCC is going to do now have to pay attention to this because they don't know how broad that authority is going to be interpreted to be. Yeah, it's, it's a little bit of a, you know, aphorism at this point, but I'll still say it. We're worried about net neutrality not just for Google and Amazon's sake because they're big and can take care of themselves, but for that next startup that none of us can identify yet. So I think I, I agree with much of what Chris said, if not all of it just now. I mean, there's a lot of changes happening here. Um, I think those big Internet players can fend for themselves, but they didn't have to when they were just getting off the ground. If if the question is um, whether the decision means that backbone providers or middle-mile providers now are subject to regulation under 706 in a way that that they weren't, you know, I'd first say that the broadband Internet access clarification didn't apply to them in the first place, right? It applies to the, the, the consumer-facing uh, broadband Internet access service that consumers face. So those 05 orders and before don't apply to those uh, to begin with. So those could have been the, – the, the FCC is free to classify many of those services as common carrier services. So that regulatory overhang, I would say, exists anyway. You now have a clarification that 706 potentially applies as well. So I'm not sure that 706 as as a potential area of regulation does a lot to change that middle mile dynamic or, or, or long haul dynamic. Okay, I think we have time for one more question, if it's quick, and the answer is quick. Anyone have a one last quick question they'd like for the panel? Yeah, right here. Yeah, that's right. I mean, they're bound by the rules that were just struck down. So they were willing to take that uh, gamble in getting their merger approved. And I think that speaks to uh, some of the loopholes that we saw in the existing rules that were struck down. We were not entirely happy with how strong they were. And I think most wired Internet providers and wireless um, thought they could have lived with them. You saw AT&T, for example, coming out and supporting the compromise in 2010. There's one direct analog that happened, in, uh, I don't know, about 10 years ago, where two cable companies merged and accepted what was the national subscribership cap, the number you could do, and then those rules were struck down by the D.C. Circuit. In that case, the FCC chose to step in and waive the condition, saying, you did this thinking this was law, this is no longer law, we're not going to hold you to that. That is entirely up to the FCC, because technically that's not a regulation, and because it was a voluntary condition, it wasn't even agency action, it's not judicially reviewable, it's one of the problems of making law, these one-off, one-party rules in this way, but technically they're still bound until the FCC tells them that they're not. I think Comcast has been out there saying, well, we'll still abide by them. So I don't think they're going to ask for that right now, but I think they could for sure. 
All right. Well, this is clearly a debate that's going to continue for some time. Uh, well, we will all be watching it closely. But in the meantime, please thank our panel for an interesting initial analysis.